This FDNY Pro podcast is brought to you by the FDNY Foundation and its partners to share experiences from the field, best practices, and lessons learned with first responders. Learn more about our mission and how you can help support New York's bravest at fdnyfoundation.org pro. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. Today I'll be speaking with Lieutenant John Amsterdam. He has written two WNYF articles on the building and design feature of the World Trade Center Plaza. Good morning, John. Good morning, Chief. Maybe you could just start off. We'd like to get started with a quick bio, how you ended up to Ladder 10. My first tour as a lieutenant was actually in Ladder 10, and I remember driving in that day and looking at this towering building, Tower 1, and just being super intimidated by it. And as I was working in Manhattan, working in other big buildings, I really, this was something completely alien to me, so I knew I had to uh, dive into this and try to increase my knowledge of these buildings and experience so I could lead with confidence. Yeah, and the building was still in the construction. What, what stage were they in at that point? So at that point, Tower One was still in construction. The glass was on the majority of the building, but the interior wasn't fitted out. Right. What year are we talking about right now? When did you, when did you uh, go to Manhattan? 2013. Okay. Well, listen, we could talk so much about it. I'm just going to start and ask you, just give us a brief overview of the whole WTC site, and then we'll delve a little bit into some of the features that are really uh, making it stand alone. So the WTC site is a 16-acre site. Pretty much every building on it is a mega high-rise, with the exception of the uh, museum and the Oculus train station. Tower One being the premier building there, 1,300 feet approximately, a little bit more than that. And then it's got a, the spire on top. It comes up to 1776 with the spire. So you have Tower One. Tower Three was recently completed. Tower Four is right across the street from Ten House. There's a vehicle security center, multiple monuments throughout the site, and uh, parks. All right, let's get into some of the building features. Uh, one of the things that in your articles that stood out to me was first responders stairwell. Could you maybe give us a little information? Yeah, so in Tower One, there's a lot of really forward-thinking building and fire prevention built into it. Far supersedes the building code of New York City and probably any other city's uh, building code. So what they did with Tower One was made separate stairs that is just for the first responders. The building occupants don't use this stairway during uh, any evacuations whenever they have drills on them. The other stairways are pressurized and they will lead the occupants out into the streets. But this particular stairway is pressurized and there is a standpipe riser in there and that's really gonna be our staging area. And what will happen if there's an emergency there, we won't be inundated with civilians as we're trying to operate. So we really shouldn't have to worry about clearing this stairway before opening doors for uh, hose lines, about them getting in the way as we connect and prepare to operate. So it should be a clear stairway. And that stairway actually leads to a small corridor, which is also pressurized. And then that corridor would lead to the normal service corridor that the building occupants would use, but that door is locked to get to this fire service corridor, which then leads to this fire service stairs. You said this is a pressurized stairwell. Is this independent of the HVAC system? No, it's going to be pressurized with their HVAC HVAC system, you know, they're, they're all going to have like a fan generally on top of the stairs and, and when the fire alarm goes off, the system starts being pressurized, the stairways start being pressurized. So, and then that will be pressurized and then the fire floor will be pressurized as well in the, the corridor. Well, part of our, as a chief officer, arriving at one of these buildings, we manage the HVAC system. I'm just curious if part of the protocol, is it to leave that on? Is that, that's why I ask if it's independent of it. 
yeah, you should be able to leave that on. It should always be able to be on. But you know, the engineers are crucial in this building. To, you know, to help the incident commander. You know, at the command post, he, there's a tremendous amount of information that that the chief at, in this particular building is able to get and has transmitted resources at the incident command post, which would be in the lobby. But uh, the engineers are going to be crucial to really utilize all these systems. But that one particular system should be able to be used. And if we want to shut off the intake to the fire floor or something like that, it's really not going to affect the firefighter stair you know, that we're going to use or the safe area of refuge, which is the corridor that the stair leads to. The elevator, you said, has some certain design features. Maybe we could expand upon yeah, that. Yeah, so uh, they have a car in the service bank of elevators, not in the regular bank of elevators. You know, there's multiple banks that the occupants use, but within the service bank, there's a specific elevator. And so trying to describe this, when you walk into the elevator, there's normal doors that open in the front. And on one side, there's also another set of doors. When we put the elevator in the service bank in fire service, and then we put this particular car in fire service, once we close the front doors, those front doors won't open again. So they're deactivated. Those doors will only open onto the pressurized fire stair. Yes, yeah, so that side door now is the only door that will open, and it'll open into this corridor, this pressurized corridor. So even if the fire was in the service corridor, you know, there was improper storage of rubbish, stuff like that. There's a fireproof door. You're in a fireproof area with pressurization. Sure. I mean, it's such a big thing locating the exact location of a fire in a high-rise building. Our procedures are very strict about stopping every five floors. If you don't know, just because you really do run the risk, you show up at a high-rise building and you get reports of fire on multiple floors, you don't know where it is. That's a tremendous design feature for us. It's a tremendous asset, and we've had some emergencies in that building, and there are so many tenants, there's so many occupants, and the HVAC systems are so intricate that we do get calls, and people are trying to help, but they're reporting fire or smoke on multiple floors, so you're really not sure where the, the, you know, obviously you want to start on the lowest first and try to make your way up. But with this fire fireproof corridor, this firefighter's corridor, it really is a tremendous asset in taking the hazard out for us, you know, so that we don't open a door into a wall of smoke. Yeah. I've also read some other things about the stairwells in general. Can you tell me about some of the systems they have that where the chief in charge at the lobby command post could relay information to those stairwells? First, when they built these stairwells, they built them nearly double what the building code requirement for the size, for the amount of tenants. I've heard uh, them describe this as, uh, you know, they're building these buildings for a fire code that hasn't been written yet. It's really forward thinking. Eventually, I think that these will be the standard for what buildings should be and the standard for what is required. Certainly changing how they build towers in this city. Yeah, particularly these mega, these mega high-rises that are severe life hazards if things go wrong. So they doubled the size of the stairways. And within the stairways, there are intercom systems that the incident commander could relay messages. But they also have like these uh, tickers that you would see maybe in a deli or something like that. And they can tell the tenants, you know, switch over from stairwell A to stairwell B on floor 32. And they could even give them a reason, you know, and what they're really trying to do is give the tenants information in this time of information. Misinformation, as particularly in these emergencies, is... Yeah, it's key to reducing panic, which is a, a huge problem we have at these buildings. So, yeah, so the chief, you know, with the help of the fire safety director, who, again, it was another key component in a mega high-rise to help manage the incident, they can type out any message they want 
in the stairwell and there'll be uh, color-coded lights, you know, they'll be red or green to like, you know, if there's a, like an area of danger for the tenants to keep going down and, and, and they drill on this. Tremendous help to the chiefs running that job to be able to gain control of the evacuation with the amount of people. That, that's really, that's really interesting. I'm sure we could dig a little deeper, but we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll move on to some other stuff. There's so much stuff to talk about. I don't know that we're going to get to it all today. Mm-hmm. One other thing that stood out in your articles was the standpipe system and the breach control, and you just have to explain a little bit about that to us. So in the petroleum industry, they've had these automatic breach control valves for a while now, and what would happen is if there's a uh, difference in pressure differential, the automatic breach control valves would automatically close. So they had to get special permission, the architects who designed this with the New York City Buildings Department, these automatic breach control valves have never been put in buildings before. So they put them throughout the buildings. So if there is a leak in, you know, a breach in the standpipe system, these automatic breach control valves will automatically detect the difference in pressure differential, closing that and isolating that breach. These buildings have always had isolation valves, but the engineer would have had to manually go and do that. These have taken that out so that the engineer doesn't have to try to you know, run up possibly through a smoke-filled area to, to do that, which might be an impossible yeah, task. An impossible task sure. So these automatic breach control valves will then automatically detect that and then shut down, saving the water that's in the reserve tanks, or possibly there's, uh, well, then there'll be crossovers and to route around the to route around the breach, so it's definitely possible to for us to feed the system and route around the breach, or to still get water in that in those areas or close to it. On behalf of the FDNY Foundation, we thank you for listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast. The foundation and its partners are helping to bring this training initiative into firehouses and EMS stations throughout the five boroughs and beyond. FDNY Pro is the department's professional platform designed for first responders. Learn more about our digital subscriptions, magazines, films, events, books, and other programs at fdnyfoundation.org pro. Now, back to the episode. I know there's a lot of features in the, in the towers, but you explained a little bit in your article about this innovative standpipe system for the entire site. Maybe you could give us a little brief overview of that. Yeah, so the site is 16 acres, and pretty much it's all interconnected underground. There's roadways for deliveries, and then there's also pedestrian corridors from building to building, which all lead to this one massive train transportation hub. And there's also a mall, which was there before 9-11 they rebuilt. So the engineers ran into a problem. Because there's so many corridors, if we have a fire in the road network that they use for deliveries or some of the pedestrian corridors or you know, in this mall, in some of these crossovers, how do we supply the standpipe system? Because let's just say Tower 4, which is across the street from Ten House, if you go into Tower 4 and you start walking your way to the train, there is a, a corridor before you hit Tower 3. And how do you know if you're underground exactly where you are? And how do you know which standpipe system to fill? So what they did is made a site-wide standpipe system for all underground areas. We call that the hub loop. And the hub loop is interconnected, and uh, the only buildings, uh, Tower 1, isn't connected to the hub loop, and uh, the vehicle security center, which is where deliveries go into and are scanned, is not connected to it. But all the other buildings are connected to it. So if you had a fire, let's say in level C2, you know, two or three levels below grade, in Tower 4, you can charge the system, you know, literally across the West Side Highway, which is pretty far. You could charge a system from any of these buildings if you 
speed the hub loop system. Now, if you had a fire in one of the upper floors and the chauffeur charged the wrong system, you wouldn't be getting water from us. So there is express piping in all these buildings. Explain that to our, to our listeners, express piping. So in these mega high-rises, I mean, we've had mega high-rises. We've had like the Empire State Building. We've had other big buildings. But when we pump in these really high pressures that are needed to get water up there, the pipes have literally broken. They, they can't sustain the pressures that we're pumping at. So in, new in the building code, when we have these mega high-rises, they have what they call express piping. So there'll be a lower standpipe system, and there'll be an upper floor standpipe system. And if you were to charge the wrong one, if you charged the lower standpipe system but had a fire on the top floor, they're, the systems are not interconnected. Are the differences, they're stronger pipes, the higher you go, they handle yeah, the higher pressure? Yeah, they're going to the, handle high, they're going to be thicker pipes. I, now, now you mentioned, and I do remember in your article, you have three separate Siamese, and they delineate what floors they supply, correct? The fact that there is express pipe and, and you know separate sandpipe systems is not unique to the World Trade Center. This is happening in other places and other cities as well. But what's unique is now there is a third system, which is the underground. So what they would have is a, un, anything below grade, which would be the hub system. Then they would have the lower floors, would be the ground floor up to whatever floor they chose. And then you'd have the upper floor system. So if you had a fire in one of those areas, it is critical to show for know exactly which the, the location and which system to charge and, and operate at. I know years back, and it's probably predates when you were there, we had a fire while that building was under construction. There was an issue with the third stage. I know they ended up doing a lot of testing. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Before I had gotten there, they had a fire while Tower 1 was still under construction, and a lot of construction materials all the way at the top were burning. So the fire code had changed after Deutsche Bank building fire, August 2007. And we now had pressure with air standpipe systems so that we would know if there was ever a breach in that standpipe system. So this was the first fire that they had, and it was in a mega high-rise, the tallest one in New York and probably in the Western Hemisphere. So and it was on the top floor. When the chauffeur started connected to the proper Siamese and he started filling it up, he started running away from water. Now, is that because it, at the time... It was a dry standpipe because the building was under construction? Yes, that's because it was a dry standpipe, and it's such a big building. It's such a big system. So what they had to do is take the rig, put it into idle in pumps, and just fill up the standpipe, which took a really long time. I, I think it took nearly an hour to fill it up. And then once it was filled up, they then could ramped it up to the third stage and were able to get the proper pressure and put out what they needed. But that was the first time that they ever happened. It was unexpected. They didn't know that that was going to happen. One of the direct causes of that is because at the time it was an open construction building and it needed to be a dry system, correct? Yeah. So in these open construction buildings, you know, they, they have to, if they can't charge the system, even though the pipes are put in, if they charge the system, you know, we could have freezing. So now they don't charge the system, they fill them up with air and then there's a, a sensor on there and there's a, a pressure. Uh, it's basically pressurized with air. And if the pressure drops, we know that like maybe someone disconnected a uh, standpipe riser cap or even worse, the standpipe riser itself might have been cut or breached. So an alarm would go off and it, it's a big deal to the building, to the construction workers to address that immediately, which was a direct cause of the Deutsche Bank building fire. All right, let's veer away from all the technical stuff. We do an entire podcast on whether it be the elevators or the standpipe system at this building. Let's talk about some of the other memorials and features at this site. I mean, it's certainly a, a huge destination for people visiting New York. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about it with you. 
Yeah, so they have there the two memorial pools, which are in the footprints of the original towers. And on there is all the victims who were killed on 9-11. And also on there are the victims of the 93 World Trade Center bombing. They're listed in those names as well. But besides those, there's a survivor tree, which is a tree that survived the collapse uh, of all these buildings, was severely damaged, but lived. They put up there America's Response Monument, which is a monument to special forces, which is- Where is that located? So Liberty Park is a park right next to where the reflection pools are, and that's where the Greek church is. And that's where they put that monument, which is pretty fitting that it's on this like elevated platform overlooking the World Trade Center. And it's a special forces soldier on a horse, and it's paying tribute to the special forces guys who were in Afghanistan literally hours after the World Trade Center attack. There's really not too many special forces monuments in the country, and that's one of them. And to us, it's a really cool monument. You know, at Ten House, we get visitors from all over the world, but we do get a lot of special forces guys, and you know, they make tremendous sacrifices. And you know, it's very fitting that their their yeah, monument their is there, there as sure. well. Yeah. So it's besides great. that, yep. uh, on Ten House itself, there's a huge bronze relief depicting the scene of 9/11 with all the names 343. That bronze relief was designed so that almost like the ancient reliefs you'd find in Rome or Egypt. You know, 2,000 years from now, if you showed up and you found that, you would be able to figure out what happened on that scene and the, you know, the, the bravery depicted by the men and women who selflessly went into the buildings and did what they could to help, you know, their fellow men. And uh, besides that, on Ten House, there's a memorial to the firefighters from Engine 10, Ladder 10, who were killed. And then there's also a monument on the side where the bronze relief is for the Deutsche Bank, which was a fatal fire. It was years after 9-11, but the building was severely damaged in 9-11, which led to all these bad conditions, which ultimately led to the loss of life to uh, New York City firefighters. Yeah, another tragic day for the department. And does a day go by where you don't have a crowd of people at Ten House? <laughs> No, so we get tons of visitors. I mean, I would say we're probably the most visited firehouse in the world. And within New York City, within Manhattan, a lot of firehouses get a lot of visitors, but we get a lot of firefighter visitors. It's actually difficult because we want to accommodate them, but due to security concerns, you know, we can't really treat them as maybe if they would if they were on the fire, at a firehouse and off the beaten path. You know, we literally sometimes have hundreds of firefighters knocking on the door. And we love talking to them and we enjoy them, but we can't. You're working um, also. But we are working. It's a work at firehouse. We're drilling. We're getting runs. You know, we're, we're training the probies. So, you know, we, we do what we could do. Yeah, it's a challenging assignment, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it's very rewarding to be there and meet guys from literally all over the world, men and women, who are in the fire service. And uh, we also get a lot of military families and veterans. So it's very rewarding to meet them and talk to them. But it is an operational firehouse, and, you know, we got to train our probie, we got to <laughs> drill, and we have to yeah. do everything that everything a normal firehouse, it, yeah. everything else that goes with the firehouse, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this has been great. We barely scratched the surface, and uh, I feel like we could get you back here. And so many different features, we could make a series out of this podcast, you know. And the site itself is, is amazing. Like, reading your articles were so eye-opening. And you can find these articles in WMIF. And for the people outside the department, they're all available on fdnypro.org. Uh, for now, John, I appreciate it. I uh, really appreciate you coming down, meeting with us, uh, sharing your knowledge. It's so important to have an officer assigned there that is really, especially now that, you know, the construction is wrapping up. And like we said, it's one of the biggest tourist sites and has special significance for us. 
and to do the deep dive and learn about it, you're a real asset to the townhouse, to the department, and uh, we appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Chief. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. For more training and information from our department's subject matter experts, go to FDNYPro.org. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to fdnyfoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.